This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. we talked about the financial burden of continuous sedation and immobility in the ICU. The next two episodes, I want to narrow in on ventilator-associated pneumonia as one of the big lethal and expensive dominoes of sedation and immobility. The average financial cost of ventilator-associated pneumonia is $45,609. And the cost of life and quality of life to the patient, as well as increased burden on the ICU teams, is incredible, yet difficult to measure. So why aren't we more panicked about it? Why do we have strict protocols for Foley and central line care, but we have subjective parameters for oral care? Yes, our head of the beds are usually at 30 degrees, but no one is saying, wait, guys, if we sedate this patient, then we take away their ability to cough, mobilize and clear their secretions, and increase their time in the ventilator, which will set them up to have ventilator-associated pneumonia. That could kill them. Stranger yet, when VAPs significantly increase healthcare costs, why aren't hospitals proactive about supporting the process of care that will prevent them? Why don't they seem to care about the rates and risks of VAPs? Today, we have Dr. Benjamin Wang with us to provide the backstory behind ventilator-associated pneumonia in our hospital systems, and even the American government. Dr. Wang, thanks for coming on the podcast. Do you mind introducing yourself? Hi, absolutely. Thank you, Kaylee. My name is Dr. Benjamin Wang, and I am a medical doctor by training. And I am, as like uh, uh, Kaylee here, I'm very passionate about taking care of patients who are on mechanical ventilation. And what is your niche, your little expert, not little, it's big expertise. What are you specifically engrossed in right now? Well, I am not clinically uh, practicing clinically, but I run, my day-to-day is basically running a small medical device company called Nevap. And what we do at Nevap is we create airway management medical devices that get people off the uh, mechanical ventilation sooner by preventing infections and complications. And what inspired you to develop this new endotracheal tube with the sample section and all of these things? So about 10 years ago, I was in the ICU and as a, I was a young doctor and I was taking care of a young lady who had just given birth, but after giving birth, she had some excess bleeding ended up in the ICU unstable. And we had to put her on a ventilator. Now, at the time, I thought if we do everything by the by what we already know, if we do the right settings and we apply the right drugs, then, you know, an, an otherwise healthy young 19-year-old should do fine and and get off the ventilator and, and go home and, you know, be with her family. But that wasn't the case. And I, I got to see firsthand what happens when patients are 
basically ventilated for extended periods of time. My patient ended up catching a secondary infectious pneumonia due to her mechanical ventilation. And it was something that we really struggled to treat effectively. And unfortunately, that person, that patient died from that complication. And at that point in my career, I was, I was looking at the literature carefully and I was figuring out that when we put people on ventilators, their risk of getting a pneumonia is exceedingly high, too high in my opinion, and that uh, somebody needed to to change that dynamic. Otherwise, patients would actually continue to suffer. So that was, that was almost a decade ago. And that's, that's what I've been working on ever since. That is so tragic and yet not that uncommon. Not at all. So I guess let's, let's back up and let's mm-hmm. zoom out. Mm-hmm. What is the definition of a ventilator associated pneumonia and what causes it? So a ventilator associated pneumonia is a hospital acquired infection that occurs after 48 hours of a patient being invasively mechanically ventilated, which is to say we put them on a ventilator, but we also put either a tracheostomy tube or an endotracheal tube or a plastic tube that either goes through the mouth into the lungs or through the neck into the lungs. And in order to qualify as a ventilator associated pneumonia, you have to have some proof. You have to have some uh, positive cultures, or you have to have a positive x-ray. You have to have some symptoms like a fever or you know a high uh, white blood cell count, that kind of stuff. You have to have some proof. But many times, it's not very consistent because not everybody will develop a fever. Older patients tend um, to be cooler in temperature, and many times they don't reach that threshold. At the same time, you know, patients who are immunocompromised may never present with a white count. Their white blood cell count just never gets that high. Or you just may never be able to collect a proper sample that gives you a positive result. And so many times, even though we have a fairly clear definition of what the pneumonia is, We don't know if the criteria we're using is actually very good at catching them. In fact, we know for a fact they they aren't, but they actually aren't very good. So while the definition is kind of clear, the criteria are are inconsistent and unreliable. Who sets the criteria? Is this something standardized in our community or does it depend per system or how does that criteria evolve? Well, this is the bad news. We, I mean, it was kind of just grandfathered in over the years that we assumed pneumonia should look like this. So it was basically based on committees of recommendations, but not really a lot of scientific proof. The tragedy of all this situation is that we've actually moved away from the definition <laughs> and found other definitions um, that are a lot less reliable and remove the surveillance requirements. So let me, let me back up and tell you what has been happening in our critical care and infectious disease community surrounding this problem. So before 2009, um, there was actually about a decade of research focused specifically on ventilator-associated pneumonia 
diagnosis. And, and we knew that the definition was clinically subjective, it was poorly defined, and it was not often reported, inconsistently at best. So the powers that would be at, at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service saw this problem, knew that it was an, a, a clinically significant, and they began penalizing hospitals based on the number of cases they reported. That was in 2009. So because there weren't any good solutions, you know, and solutions that address people on mechanical ventilation are often expensive and difficult, hospitals just basically got together and they basically said, you know, the strategy should be we report less of these cases. Because if you report less, then <laughs> you don't get penalized. And so the, the number of cases, reported cases of ventilator-associated pneumonia in this country fell over 80% after that, after that regulation came in place. So the cases probably didn't change. The reporting changed. Exactly. Actually, in, in 2016, we had a big report on something like 25,000 patients from, from the, basically from Medicare. And they basically proved that the rate of ventilator-associated pneumonia did not change. What happened was the reporting changed and the rates stayed the same, which means patients had no improvement in terms of their outcomes. And, and we just decided to sweep them under the sweep this problem under the rug. Now, it's not to say that the powers would be didn't know they have a problem, had a problem. Well, in 2014, the CDC actually came in and revised the definition for ventilator-associated pneumonia, knowing that they had a surveillance problem. Uh, what they did is they said, well, if somebody has worsening, ventil basically ventilator settings, they said, if they were doing worse because of mechanical ventilation, then the results should show up on the settings we use on the ventilator. Hmm. This is all in theory. There is no data to support this, this new definition, which we call ventilator-associated events. And they basically made it a definition to try and catch ventilator-associated pneumonia. So you could have a patient going into septic shock and their ventilator settings could stay the same. Oh my gosh. And then the hospital wouldn't have to report it. Now, the funniest thing is other countries saw what we were doing and were asking around and trying to do research to figure out if we had hit on something important. If somehow we had figured out a real good way of surveying ventilator associated pneumonia and proving outcomes. So they did their own studies and used our definitions. <laughs> oh, this is embarrassing. I mean, it's, it's, it's good that the scientific community is doing this because otherwise we wouldn't know whether it's working or not. Well, absolutely. Researchers in the UK and France basically did the research based on the data they were collecting. And they found out that our definition was catching less than 15% of the ventilator sociomonians. Which means the def the new definition for ventilator associated events was trying to catch everything and was actually missing 
the thing it was designed to, to basically address, which was in reality, the reporting problem around ventilator social moment. And, and it's so funny because this is a perfect example of that we, we had a problem, we were doing not so well at it. And then, you know, regulators stepped in and made the problem worse. <laughs> Yeah. Not only for patients, but for hospitals and, and uh, even their own agency. So back in 2019, recognizing that they had made a mistake, that there was a problem with the surveillance criteria, they removed the surveillance requirement altogether. So now hospitals, even though many of them still do this internally, they don't have any reporting requirements or surveillance requirements for ventilator-associated events even. So they've- Because there's still the penalization of it, right? There's still, it's still going to cost them money to do the right thing, to report the harm that's actually occurring. Just to clarify, they lose money even if they don't report it. Because when a patient does, does, poorly in the hospital, they don't get paid more. They're just not incurring the end of the year penalties. But when a patient doesn't do well, the hospital still have to pay for the additional care. So even without the penalty, they are penalizing themselves. But what, what's also happening is during a pandemic, when there's so many patients who are mechanically ventilated, you can imagine if a, a large percentage of the patients that are put on a ventilator don't get off the ventilator soon or in a healthy manner, it puts an extreme amount of burden on our healthcare system. And that's basically what we've been struggling with during the pandemic. It's not, it's not that we, that community acquired cases and community, you know, people sick at home is a huge problem for our healthcare system. The real problem is when people get hospitalized and we don't have enough beds and equipment and supplies. And then if we do have them in a bed, when we do have them on a ventilator, we have this system that sets them up to spend days to weeks to months longer occupying those resources that we need. Mm-hmm. This is resonating so much with what I've been experiencing, even talking with families of ICU member uh, patients, looking online, ICU support groups, COVID-19 support groups across the board. Almost every single person is saying, Basically, my mom was doing better, and then she started to have a higher white blood count, or her ventilator settings went back up, and they're looking for a source of infection. Yes. I'm like, let me guess. Let me guess. Because mm-hmm. they've been immobilized, sedated, laying supine in bed, or prone this whole time. So yet, if you talk to hospital systems and you say, I can help decrease your ventilator associated pneumonia rate, what do they say? They say, no, we don't have that problem. We're, we're a good hospital and we, we take, we've already taken care of that completely. And the data is so stark because our European counterparts during the pandemic are reporting rates of ventilator social pneumonia in these COVID patients that are astronomical. They're 40, 45, 50% of all ventilated patients. And what have we been reporting? We haven't been reporting. (laughs) That's right. So we don't even, we don't even know. When I approach some hospitals, they're still in the denial mode and they basically say we have zero. And statistically speaking, the only way you have zero 
secondary pneumonia in these cases is if you have no patients. And, and it's literally impossible to have none of these infections at this point. And the mortality rate for ventilator-associated pneumonia? is in, increased, oh, what we know from our European counterparts is it increases mortality something between uh, 15 and 25%. And, and that's, that's, that's already compared to patients where we don't know if they have a pneumonia and they end up dying in the hospital. So it's, it's not a good, the data points aren't very good <laughs> because the patients are already very sick. We don't know exactly if we're missing some of the pneumonias and patients are dying from it, or if we're catching more of the pneumonias and, and finding that, you know, they're doing a little, they're not doing as bad. But what we do know is that when you, and it's, it's pretty common sense. If you're sick with a viral pneumonia and you get another second pneumonia happening at the same time, it's usually not good for the patient. I, I can say almost certainly it's not good for anybody. You already have such a compromised body that's gone through so much, mm-hmm. especially if they've been sedated and mobilized. They're so weak. And a lot of times what I'm seeing in these cases that they're nearing the end of the COVID pneumonia, like their ventilator settings are decreasing. They're, if not minimal, they're trying to liberate them from the ventilator and then bam. Yep. Now this new infection has caught up with them and they don't have the reserve to fight it like they did with the COVID pneumonia. They don't have... Yeah. The strength or the, the atrophy is so profound. Delirium's already there. Right. They already have injured other organs. And now we've introduced a whole new infection for them to fight. Yeah. And it is lethal. And, and just to clarify, I mean, I, wa- I want to take a step back even from that and say, say this. We're putting an enormous amount of stress on the body and the patient. And we know from the literature that these pneumonias are time dependent which means the longer a person spends on a ventilator, their risk of pneumonia goes up, their outcomes go go the other way. And so the strategy should be to look carefully at what we are doing to these patients to get them off mechanical ventilation sooner and to make sure that while they're on mechanical ventilation, remember, this is probably the most vulnerable time in a person's life. When they're completely sedated, they're paralyzed, they don't, they're not breathing for themselves, and they can't even communicate or cough or, or, or anything to prevent bad things from happening to them. So it's not surprising that if you can adopt strategies to reduce the time a person spends in that state, that the outcomes ultimately become better. And we're absolutely going to get deep into these strategies and the solutions next episode. What are some of the main causes or risk factors in addition to prolonged time in the ventilator? What else can cause ventilator-associated pneumonia? Well, the risk factors are actually identical to some of the risk factors that we've seen for COVID patients that don't do well. It's time on mechanical ventilation. It's the uh, use of a invasive mechanical ventilation, which is, you know, if you put something in a patient for a long period of time, it tends to get dirty. Being being very heavy, having comorbidities like uh, diabetes or being immunosuppressed, and and basically having other 
things that push down your immune system and immobilize you. Just the fact of being paralyzed is a risk of, for ventilator-associated pneumonia and extended and, and poor outcomes in general. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. Throughout my about seven years in the awake and walking ICU, I really think I saw two ventilator social pneumonias that I can remember. And because that team really has to defend their practices, they uh-huh. scrupulously check their outcomes, self-extubations, falls, ventilator social pneumonias. They are scouring their outcomes. They have a nurse dedicated to watching those reports and making sure we keep track of them so that we know how effective we're being. So this is a team that really cares about these things. And I would hope that the hospital system that they're a part of reports them. It sounds like it's up to the hospital system, not necessarily the team. It is, it is, it really is. Because what will happen is even when the team finds one and documents it, it's still up to somebody else that is unrelated oftentimes to the clinical team to report the cases. Oh, that's sketchy. So while you may, if you were to do a chart review, you find, you'd find ventilator associated pneumonia and you'd find reports in the department that they're improving, you know, and their measures and their, their quality improvements, but somehow that information doesn't get reported sometimes. Doesn't make it up to survey, you know, doesn't make it up to other types of reporting. And it can be due to a number of different factors. It could be by design, basically. So it may or may not be just one person or one little entity that's intentionally. Uh, Kaylee, you know, uh, you know, as well as I do that healthcare is complicated. And the more hands and the more people involved, the more chances that things can go wrong or they can go a different direction. And it's easy to hide these kind of um, systemic errors. There is no federal regulator that comes into the hospital and says, I want to do a chart review. There is not. And yet they're caring about whether or not our coffee is covered at the nursing desk. Oh, not whether or not we're adding to the mortality of patients. The accountability in some of these places is quite different. And so that's, that's one of the challenges we have in healthcare. Well, these two cases that I've seen of ventilator associated pneumonia that I can think of and recall right now, they were both sedated and immobilized. Um, One was a young man that had tumors all throughout his trachea and he had like a steel wired endotracheal tube and his Uh airway was fragile. So we did sedate him and he got MRSA pneumonia Yep, and it was traumatizing for us. Uh And I think 
if I remember correctly, they may that may have led to his demise. Yep. And granted, he was didn't have a great prognosis, but but nonetheless, it was that was the last straw, and that was such a new concept because that team is not used to seeing that because patients are awake, moving, coughing. They're not getting the same subglottic aspiration. And mm. it's just not that common to have patients have ventilator associated pneumonia. If I can remember too distinctly, it's because that was a big deal. And we all were aware of it. We talked about it. It was almost like a case study to say, this is why we treat patients the way we do as a standard, because this is what happens when we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd never want this to become normal. But our team's really recognizing it. I mean, they may chart it, document it, but are they saying, hey, this could have been preventable. This is a big deal. This is a, I know we talk about collapses and UTIs and things like that, but that, are they talking about it? They, they really aren't many times. And, and to be quite, I mean, there aren't a lot of caudies that end up causing death and end up hospital, you know, causing patients to end up on a ventilator for longer periods of time. So the consequences of certain infections are quite different. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that we aren't, that these infections aren't important. They really are important. I mean, all infections are really important for for patients. The the end result, though, I would imagine should also take it, should also be taken into account in these cases because these infections do cause death. And, and quite frankly, we don't do a good job of diagnosing these infections in general. While you may have only seen two cases of diagnosed ventilator-associated pneumonia, it is very likely that you've seen hundreds of cases of pseudomonas, Klebsiella pneumonia, MRSA pneumonia. And what has happened in these cases is we know from the literature that the bacteria and the fungal infections that are involved in ventilator associated pneumonia are quite different than what we see in the community. But what happens is when you come into the hospital, there's no incentive to report it as a ventilator associated pneumonia. There's actually a lot of disincentives. So what will happen is Many of the doctors will look at this and say, well, this was, somebody will say, well, this was a community acquired pneumonia. And that simply wasn't true because we just don't see Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, actinic bacteria, these very rare types of pneumonias in the community in high numbers. Maybe sometimes once in a blue moon in immunocompromised patients, but I suspect if you, if one were to look closely at the antibiotic use, and the, the bacteria and the fun, uh, funguses involved in these infections, you'd quickly find out that there was a lot of ventilator associated pneumonia that was never reported and never considered. And, and how, do they, how do they get around it if they've done a culture on admission and then two weeks later you do another culture and it grows completely different things? Remember, the doctors know that when they report something as an infection, they, they can simply report it as a pneumonia of unknown origin or un, you know, they don't know where it was picked up and they treat, it doesn't change the treatment plan. You still use antibiotics and you still do, do, you know, the same kind of kidney care and the same kind of heart consults and everything that you would, if it was regardless of that diagnosis, once you diagnose somebody with pneumonia, the treatment plan is, is similar in many, many cases. So if there's no incentive to report it as a ventilator associated pneumonia and there's no training around have, 
letting them know that this is, this is a problem. Many times the clinicians can basically look at this and say, well, yeah, you know, I see pseudomonas pneumonia all the time. It's not a problem. I'll, I call it pseudomonas pneumonia, not ventilator associated pneumonia, or I call it community acquired, or I call it um, infection of unknown origin. And you can get away from really trying to figure out what, what happened in the, in, in the case of, of diagnosing an pneumonia. And what that does, it, it, it further complicates the surveillance issue. Interesting, because no one wants this harm to occur on their watch, right? right. So there's, um, even if they're not going to have direct penalization, it's, it's kind of a, an ego thing or a, a pride thing to say, if, I, if we say that, that they got this while they were on the ventilator and call it a ventilator-associated pneumonia, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel good. It doesn't make us feel successful. Right, right. But I mean, you know, just like the pandemic, it's like we can do the things that make us feel good good or we can do the things that make a difference and and doing the things that make a difference oftentimes is not the easy way <laughs> easy thing to do but it's really the right thing to do in the long run because the more we try and sweep problems underneath the rug and try to act like they don't exist what happens is they they come back to bite us in the butt <laughs> absolutely I, i'm worried you know if hospital systems don't recognize Mm-hmm. the systemic contributions to death, to hospitalization costs, and those kind of things. When you or I, or hopefully the teams themselves try to pitch this elevated process of care, now we can't use this car to say, we can dec- this process of care can decrease your ventilator associated pneumonia rates that we know are a problem, but they're unaware that it's a problem and they're in denial. So then that discussion is, is thwarted. Right. <laughs> that right. should be part of our all the the cards that we're playing to say here are the rates of ventilator associated pneumonias they are caused by these risk factors this is what we need to change here's how we can improve patient outcomes and always possible but if we're in denial we can't address we can't fix what we can't confront right right and if if there's anything that the pandemic has taught us is that if we don't confront it it really comes back to be a bigger problem rather than a smaller problem, rather than a manageable problem. And, and denying that we have a problem is, is not a good strategy going forward. I mean, what we're talking about has real consequences, not just for patients today and, and for patients that have actually had these problems, but for future generations too. Antibiotics and this type of care are the only medications that we have that get worse and less useful every time we use them. You know, you think about our, our blood pressure medications, our blood pressure medications are gonna work 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, they're always going to work. You know, we'll, hopefully we'll get a couple better ones with less side effects and they're more effective. But antibiotics, the antibiotics that we use today will rapidly, become less effective in the next couple of years. And if we don't address infectious problems such as this sooner, what we may end up having is a world where our antibiotics don't support modern medicine. And, and that's really concerning too. That's a terrifying prospect. Mm-hmm. That's really unsettling. 
And even from my side, just thinking about how we've suddenly, I mean, not suddenly, but over time throughout the pandemic, normalized the use of midazolam mm-hmm. as the first to first go-to sedative. This generation isn't even going to be aware of any alternative forms of treating patients. It's just standardized. And now we can't even talk about how harmful it is. We don't realize how many ventilator associated pneumonias, mm-hmm. midazolam, deep sedation, immobility yep. led to. Mm-hmm then we have less incentive to change. And this is gonna just normalize this really bad practice and impact many generations of patients to come. And then we're gonna continue to have more needs for these antibiotics that are gonna become less effective. That is terrifying. Absolutely. You know, and you know, I, I hear a lot on NPR and podcasts about memorializing the 800,000 or so victims from the, you know, victims from the pandemic in our country. I can think of no better memorial to those patients than figuring out how to improve care for um, the people who need this type of care in the future. I really can't, you know, if, if there's one lasting legacy that we can impart on our healthcare system is if we can improve care here, it makes a big difference. Oh, that's a, that's a beautiful thought. Interviewing survivors and family members, they are so eager to dedicate their suffering to mm-hmm. the prevention of harm of others. Mm-hmm. And that really should be, yeah, one of our big motivators to not allow their deaths to go in vain, make this the ultimate um, research. Right. You know, and we have had the largest sample size in history mm-hmm. of ventilator management. And we do need to dissect it and be honest and real with ourselves about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. What worked, what didn't work. And we need to decide who we're gonna be and what we're gonna do moving forward. Pandemic hopefully isn't gonna last forever, but mm-hmm. these practices could. Yes, that's the key. It's time that's for accountability, real talk. Um, next episode, we'll get into the solutions moving forward. Anything else you would add to this discussion, Dr. Wing? No, I think we covered pretty well. And, and I hope your listeners enjoy what we've discussed. All the studies, all the information you shared will be included on the blog. So go do your research. Thanks so much. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniconsulting.com.